Almighty and everlasting Father, we bless you. A reading this morning from Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Everyone, good to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, please do keep uh, that passage in Exodus 24 uh, open in front of you. That'll be uh, helpful uh, to you this morning, I trust. Thank you again to Dom, to the elders, for having me uh, here today. It's a joy uh, to be with you down from, uh, from Aberdeen. Well, it's quite a passage this morning, isn't it? Quite an amazing uh, passage uh, this morning, and uh, it really is one of the high points of uh, the Old Testament, not just because it's literally high, they're at Sinai, 
Israel are gathered at a mountain, but theologically it is, it is a high point, a really significant passage in the Old Testament. And what it, what it does for us is actually Exodus 24 that we've just read is teaching us a lot about what we're doing here today. It has a lot to tell us about gathered worship. It is God's people gathering to worship him. And it is, even though there's fire and blood being sprinkled and all those things, it it is a kind of room lit dimly that, that kind of casts a shadow forward to tell us about what we're doing here today. So they're at Sinai, and we're at this building gathered here in this part of Dundee. They're meeting about 1,400 years or so before Jesus comes. We're meeting 2,000 years after Jesus came, but it's telling us about what we're doing here. It's all about worship. This chapter in one word is all about worship. And so what I want to do this morning is set the bar high for us. I want to set the bar really, uh, really high. I want to set a challenge for us so that by the end of the sermon, that by the power of God, I've been praying this week, by the end of the sermon, we would think we'll never want to miss a Sunday again. That that by the grace of God, why, why would we ever want to miss a Sunday again? So imagine this week, someone comes up to you and they say to you, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to pay for you an all expenses paid flight, private jet, you name the place anywhere in the world. I'll take you there. Any place to do anything, we can get anyone to come with you. So say you want to go, I don't know, maybe to Disneyland. Some of you would think that's great. Some of us, maybe that's our worst nightmare. Grand Canyon. You you pick it. Pick the person you want to go with. Which sports star, Ronaldo, Messi, some singer, whoever it is. They'll meet you there. They're going to have a day with you. All paid for. But it's next Sunday. It's next Sunday. My prayer is that by the end of all this, whatever the pull on our hearts would be, we would say, no, we, we want to be here. Now, if they offer you that next Saturday, crack on. I'm sure you'd have a fantastic time. Maybe even next Monday, although maybe you need to speak to your boss or your lecturer or whatever as well, right? But but Sunday, gathering with God's people, we wouldn't want to miss it for the world. So that's our bar this morning. That's our bar this morning. So, So how do we get there? What does this teach us about worship? What does this teach us about gathered worship? What we're doing now? Three things. There are three things I think it teaches us about worship. The first one is the occasion for worship. The occasion for worship. What is it that's brought them to this point? What is it that's brought them to this point? Now, this is actually really not Exodus 24. It's what's gone before. What is it that's led them here? Some of you will have been here each week tracking through Exodus. Perhaps some of us are are visiting. But, But understanding what's brought them here teaches us so much about what they're doing, about what we're doing. So what has brought them to Exodus 24? Well, it is God who has rescued and covenanted with his people. That's the occasion for worship. God has rescued and made covenant with his people. He's rescued them from Egypt. He's defeated Pharaoh. And as we were hearing earlier, as we've read Exodus 19 and then 20 and following, he's made covenant with them. The occasion for worship is God's rescue and covenant with his people. 
I wonder if you've ever been to a birthday party. Um, particularly, you might do this if you're younger, but particularly someone older. And at that birthday party, say a 70th or 80th or 90th birthday party, um, they put photos up of the person. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been to that? And you can, you can look at the photos of this person who's celebrating this great milestone birthday and you kind of track back, don't you? And you see their history. So you see them maybe when they were just getting uh, married. You maybe see them uh, holding their first um, children. You see them uh, uh, as they start out work, perhaps in a school uniform, or if they did some kind of military service after the war, you see them in their military uniform. It's really special, isn't it? You, you look at someone, you see, ah, you're still here, and you look at the photos to tell you the story of what's gone before. And that's what makes the party so special. Look how God has kept you, or uh, so special. Look how this person's been blessed They've been blessed with family, kids, through work, all these things, and it helps make the occasion so special. So what's Israel's story? What's Israel's story? Well, as we've just said, they've been rescued from Pharaoh, but, but keep looking back on the photos. Can you keep tracing back the photos? They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then keep hitting reverse. Hit reverse in your mind if you know the story through, gener- through Genesis. Reverse through Joseph and then Jacob, Isaac, Back to Abraham, who God covenanted with, made covenant with. Keep reversing before that. Think of Noah and the flood. And keep tracing those family photos right back to the garden. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. And then, oh, but there's one photo on the wall, isn't there? One photo that, that makes us understand everything. That, that, if you like, sets the scene for everything. Genesis 3, Sin. Sin and a people sent out of the garden, sent out of the garden. What makes this so special, this worship at Sinai so wonderful? It is because when you trace the family tree right back, when you trace Israel's story right back, it is a story tarnished by sin, by being cast away from God, sent out of God's presence. Ever since Genesis 3, the Bible asks us one question, and I think this is true right through, particularly through the Old Testament, particularly the first five books in the Pentateuch, the Bible asks a question again and again, and it's this, how can a holy God, how can a holy and righteous God live with an unholy people and an unrighteous people? How can they dwell again? together? How can God's uh, people, what they lost in Eden, how can that be restored? God's people in God's place enjoying his rule that was smashed in Eden. And the journey of God's people ever since that date to right here in, uh, in Sinai in Exodus 24 is trying to answer that question. Think about it. Today, could you fly down to London on this private jet that someone's promised you for your holiday next week. Can you fly down to London and just walk in the front door of Buckingham Palace and eat with the king? Can you do that? And imagine if it was someone with a huge criminal record. Imagine if that person's crimes were against that king. Can they get anywhere near him? I think we would all say no. Or perhaps we'd all say no apart from one way. There is one way that you can fly to London, huge criminal record, eat with the king, and that's if he invites you. 
If he says to you, come, your record is clean. I've used my royal decrees or whatever powers I have to wipe that away, to wash it all away. You can come with me. And so God's people here gathered on Sinai are here by the grace of God. That's what we've just sung, isn't it? It's the grace of God. He's rescued them, brought them, protected them, kept them all the way from Adam right to this point to draw them to himself. He's rescued them, made covenant with them. Remember, a covenant is an agreement between God and man, between humanity, between his people, where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and curses if they're broken. So God has called out a people. He's called a people to himself. And at the very heart of that covenant promise is God's, you just see this again and again through the Bible, God's words, I will be your God and you will be my people. He saved them. He's rescued them all because of his grace. And so that's what he's done for us, isn't it? That's what he's done for us. The, the occasion, the, the why do we worship here today? It is the grace of God who saved us in Christ. And when you look at your family photo, my family photo, think about it. You have a big birthday coming up. You, you put photos on the wall. I'm sure there are some photos or at least some occasions in all of our lives. If they were photographed, we would want them never to go near anywhere near someone else to see them. We all have things, don't we, that we've done or thought in our minds and with our hearts or not done that we wouldn't want the world to see, but God has seen them. God has seen them. He knows what they are. And yet, by his grace, he's come and said, come to me. I will show you grace and love and mercy. Come to me. And so the joy of what we're doing here today, what we're resting in, remembering, is a God who's come to save us, to rescue us from our sin. And so that's what's brought them to Exodus 24 then. And turning to this uh, passage, we see Moses and some others make two trips up the mountain, two trips up the mountain. I don't know, as we read it, as I looked at it this week, to me, it felt a bit like the grand old Duke of York, kind of, is Moses up? Is he down? Is he only halfway up? Is he only halfway up or down? It felt a little bit like that, but there are two trips up the mountain. There's the first one, God announces in 24, 1 and 2, but he doesn't do it until verse 9 to 11. So the kind of first half of the passage, God calls Moses at the start of 24, you can see it, and then in verse 9, eventually they go up. And as they go up, some can go all, and Moses particularly can go further. And then the second one there in verse 12, do you see it? The Lord says to Moses, come up. So assuming somewhere in the middle there, he's gone back down. So Moses did very well with his pace counter on his Fitbit while they're at Sinai. Okay, he is up and down this mountain uh, a lot. So two trips up the mountain that teach us more about worship. And so the first trip up the mountain, these first 12 verses, what do they teach us? They teach us that the way of worship is God's way. And that's our second point. The way of worship is God's way. The occasion for worship, why they're here, is God's covenant and God's rescue. But the way of worship is God's way. Let me just read verses 1 to 3 again for us. Then he, that is God, said to Moses, come up. 
to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nahab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And then verse 3, Moses came and told, all, uh, told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So God says to Moses and the, the 73 others, you're to come up. But before Moses goes up, what does he do? He gathers the people together in verse 3. He gathers the people together and they worship. They worship. They have this covenant confirmation Moses reads the word to them. They're going to reply back, we can do it. And and what they're doing here in these next few verses, three to eight, is they're sealing the covenant. They're confirming the covenant that God has made. Think of a marriage ceremony. Imagine a marriage ceremony here. I'm guessing if it was in this church, they'd walk, walk down the aisle here. And at the front of the church, the couple exchange vows, don't they? They exchange vows But that's not it. What happens after that? There's vows and there's tears, particularly from the groom normally. Floods of tears. I was in tears. And you have tears. But what normally happens after that? There's there's hymns and prayers. Normally, or I guess what often happens is either at the front or sometimes off to the side, the couple go to sign sign the, the license, don't they? They've got to go and sign the marriage license. Normally, somebody plays some beautiful... I and Audi or Beethoven or, I don't know, some beautiful music with a violin in it. But they're over at the side doing something very solemn, aren't they? They're doing something very, very solemn. They've exchanged their vows at the front, but yet they need to go and sign the license. And in, in some sort of sense, you could say that, that that's what's happening here. God has made covenant with them in Exodus 20. He's given them the law. And here they are sealing the covenant. And they do that in worship. But they can only approach God in a certain way. They can't just do that as they like. A bit like signing the the marriage license there. It's it's a document given to you. You've got to sign it in a certain way. Bride and groom and witnesses and minister and all those kind of things. It's got to be done right. And we can't just come to God as we like. No, God is holy. We've seen that throughout Exodus. And we're going to lean into that more and more as we learn about worship in the rest of the book. Exodus, in a way, just falls into two parts, really. God's rescue, and then God setting up his people to worship him. That's what's coming. God is holy. We're not holy, so we have to come in a certain way. Remember our question, how does a holy God dwell with unholy people? What does approaching God look like? Well, I think there are four things here uh, in this uh, first trip up the mountain or this first service that tell us. But first of all, how can we approach God? How can we approach God? We need a mediator. That's the first thing. We need a mediator. Verse 2. You see that there in verse 2? Moses alone shall come near. Moses has acted as the mediator so far through Exodus. He'll continue to do that. You need a mediator. If you wanted to enter Buckingham Palace and have dinner with the king... I don't know, maybe some of you here have been to Buckingham Palace, been to Holyrood. Maybe there's people here with MBEs, OBEs. I'd love to talk to you about that after if you've done that. What a thing that would be. Someone goes between, don't you? You have someone that would go between you, that would invite you, that would tell you what the, the protocol is, how to come, how to be dressed. Well, we need a mediator. We need representation because of our sin. We can't come in. And we need a mediator for us. 
Moses has that role here, but it's only temporary, isn't it? It doesn't last forever. No, the, the mediator we need is one greater than Moses. Moses does it here on Sinai, but we need one greater than Moses. And that role is only found in Jesus Christ. What does Paul say to Timothy in the New Testament? He says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That's what Paul writes to Timothy. Hebrews speaks of this too in Hebrews chapter 3. What does the writer to the Hebrews say? He says Jesus is greater than Moses, the Son of God who has come to be our mediator, to rescue us. And so it's very simple. If you want to know God, you need a mediator. And this side of Calvary, to come to God, that is Jesus alone. So do you know Jesus today? Do you know Jesus today? If you do, rejoice, rejoice for in him, in him you have a mediator who can bring you before God and deal with your sin and bring you before God that you would belong to the family of God. Your sin is dealt with. If you don't know Jesus, don't look anywhere else. There is nowhere else. There's nowhere else to turn for mediation between you and God except in Jesus. And that's the news that we need to tell our friends and our city and our neighborhoods, isn't it? As we put the bins out, we maybe want to try and time it. So we take our bins in and out with our neighbors. Can we tell you about Jesus? We're all looking for it down in our hearts to be made right with God. Everyone, so many people we know, they're just looking in the wrong places. We need Jesus. He alone is our mediator, our advocate towards God. And so Moses, the mediator here in Exodus 24, now kind of takes on the role as worship leader, as worship leader. And he leads the people in this service of covenant renewal. What does he say uh, happens then uh, in uh, verse 3? There are some more elements. We need a mediator. Second, we need a book. We need a book. Look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then look at verse four. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the 12 tribes of Is- uh, the 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then verse seven, you get it repeated. Then he took the book of the com- uh, covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. In order to approach God, we need a mediator. We can't do without a mediator, but we can't do it without God's word. We cannot approach God without his word. And you get it twice here at the sort of start of the service and near the end of the service, Moses brings the word of the Lord. And and what is that actually here? Well, I think we could say it's the Ten Commandments. And it's all that Moses has been given these last few chapters. It's the case law. It's all that God has given to Moses. It is God's word. We can't come to worship God, to gather with God, without his word and without seeking to obey his word. Do you see it? Moses reads the word of God and the people respond by saying, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God's word at the heart and our longing to obey God's word at our heart. I was once part, uh, after I left school, 
I took a, a year out and went out to New Zealand and worked with Scripture Union out there. Um, I think my mum found it sad. She said, I was 18, you know, why do you want to go to New Zealand? We don't have any connections in New Zealand. I said, well, if I'm going to travel, I may as well go as far away from home as possible, which was probably quite an insensitive thing to say. I had a very happy home. I just was like, oh, if we're going to travel, we'll go far. Out in New Zealand, worked with SU and was part of a local church. And while, we, while I was there in this church, this church had a morning service. It looked a lot like this, but they wanted to start something in the evening. And they asked if I would help with it, and I did. But, but as I, we sort of journeyed through those for the few months I was there, I was only there a few months. And as I look back on that, what I didn't see at the time and what I see now or, or, or saw as I reflected on it is they tried to do an evening service for this church. And it was a good, faithful church. But they wanted to make it more appealing to outsiders. And they thought one way to do that is let's not have the Bible. And so there was lots of drama and lots of other types of things. But God's word wasn't there. God's word wasn't there. And I suppose I look back on that now and see that was part of sort of an emerging church movement that was happening those times in the late kind of 2000s. And, but what a thing to say. We'll have drama, we'll have poems, we'll have whatever else, but not God's word. No, no, we need God's word. God's word right at the center. That those people meant well but they were totally misplaced. Right at the gathering of the worship of God here is God's word. Is God's word read and explained and given to the people? God's word is right at the heart. And that's why we sit here today, isn't it? With Bibles opened, with scripture everywhere printed, but right before you in your bulletin, some of us with our Bibles here on phones or our physical Bibles, God's word open, read, explained. We want to hear from God and he speaks to us through his word, through his word. So right back to the question at the start, why do we want to be here week by week, Lord's day by Lord's day? Now we know we get ill, we know that some of us have to work, some of us are doctors, we have other jobs, we've got to stay home with our kids when they're sick, we get all of that, but why, all else being equal, do we want to be here? Dear friends, I pray that your longing to be here is because your longing in your prayer is to hear God speak, to hear God speak. This is the means God has given, his word open, sung, and prayed, but most especially read and preached and preached. Why do we want to be here more than anywhere else week by week? Because we get to hear from God, to hear from our Savior, hear from our King, the one who made us, the one who we're going to spend all eternity with, who shaped us after his image, who rescued us in his Son. He speaks to us. He speaks to us. We can read our Bibles through the week. We should do that. We want to read our Bibles day by day and pray and ask that uh, the Lord would continue to teach us and minister to us. That's why on the back of your A5 sheet, you have a verse and some questions for the week. We want to do that. But most especially as we gather, the gathering of God's people in worship, God gathers us to speak to us. And dear friends, I hope that's a sweet thing for you as we want to gather is to hear from God. So what do we need to gather? We worship God's way. The way of worship is God's way. We need a mediator, book. And the third thing is blood, blood. Do you see it there? Right in the middle, there is a sacrifice, verse five. 
And he, that's Moses, sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood, and he threw it against the altar. And then verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you accordance with all these words. We need blood sacrifices and blood. This is a covenant sealed in blood. Dear friends, we cannot come to God without blood being shed, without sacrifice, without blood. That, that's kind of at the heart of all this. That's what he says, the blood of the covenant with the Lord here. I wonder if you remember Genesis 15. We can read it later if we get a chance. God makes covenant with Abraham. And in a scene kind of worthy of any Hollywood blockbuster, an animal is cut in two and God passes between it. And what's that signifying? Well, there's lots going on there, but blood is shed. Blood is shed, and God passes between it to say, I will keep this covenant. Covenants are things sealed in blood. So there's three things going on here with the blood. What, what three things do we see? Very briefly, one, we see the need for a substitute. In verse 5, the young men of Israel are sent to have burnt offerings and sacrifices. We need a substitute. Secondly, we see that the blood propitiates God. Do you see that first, how the blood is thrown on the altar? It propitiates God. What is that? It turns away God's wrath. Propitiation, it's what makes God for us. And so blood has to be shed to make God for us, to propitiate, to turn away his wrath. And thirdly, what do we learn with the shedding of the blood here? We see the blood consecrates. In verse 8, he sprinkles the blood on people to make them clean. Can you imagine standing there? Can you imagine what that would have been like in front of Sinai with, with blood being sprinkled on you? Can you imagine the, the smell? Can you imagine the feeling of it? I, I know some people, they get the slightest cut somewhere and they, they faint. Maybe that's some of us here, the sight of blood. Oh. But blood has to be shed and sprinkled on the altar, on people. What would that teach you? I think it would teach us a lot if we were gathered there. But I think it would teach us to long for a substitute, for substitutionary atonement, something, someone to die in my place, to shed their blood, that I would go free. Who do we know that's done that? Jesus. Jesus. What, what does the writer to the Hebrews say? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And look, it's Moses here that can come close. But now in Jesus, all of us come close. By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened through the curtain, that is his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance, with our hearts sprinkled. J just like the people there had blood sprinkled on them, our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. They are sprinkled with blood on the outside. And as you go through the Old Testament, particularly in Leviticus, we're going to learn, well, they need atonement every year. The day of atonement comes every year. They need to make sacrifices very often, we're going to learn about all that, even in uh, the next few weeks as the plans for the ark and the tabernacle are, are, are given. They get sprinkled on the outside. But we are sprinkled by Jesus on 
the inside. And not again and again, no, but once and for all, Christ has made us clean. Jesus shed his blood that we might be here today. Your Savior died to cleanse you, to make you clean. Oh, what wondrous love is this, that Christ would die for us, to make us clean. What's the fourth thing we learn about the way of worship then? The way of worship bread. What happens then in 9 to 11? After all this, Moses and the 73 others, they they go up the mountain and they have a meal. Now, I've said bread. It doesn't say bread. It says they ate with God. But given they've had manna up to this point, we think it could be bread. It certainly wasn't Diet Coke and hula hoops, okay? So if you don't want to go with me on the bread, you can say a meal. But they, they have a meal with God. They have a meal with God. It's almost scandalous. If there's one thing the Israelites knew up until this point is that if you see God, you will die. But these 73 go up the mountain and they see God. That's why in verse 11 it says, and he did not lay his hand, that is God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank because they'd be expecting God to lay his hand on them. How can we come near? We are unholy and you are holy. How can we come near? It's because of the grace of God, because of a mediator and blood that's been shed, because of God's word and all that he has done to say, come. God's mercy God's grace, God's love, and invites them to a table. Isn't it true that that table fellowship, sharing a meal together, being in someone's house is such a wonderful thing? Think think of what's happening after the service today. The the laughter, the fun, the fellowship that's going to happen over lunch with, with the youth group. There's something about it, isn't it? Going into someone's house and the person says, come sit at my table. God says to Israel, come sit at my table table. Come and feast with me. Come and eat with me. Come and be mine. You see, God's covenant has saved them out of Egypt and into God's family for union, for communion, for family meals. They were saved to know God and to be with God, and here they are with God. And dear friends, that last point, this feasting on the mountain, the, the, this Moses' second trip up the mountain, 12 to 18, really just leans into that even more. It leans into that even more. You see, what we've had in this first trip up at the mountain, if you like, this first half of the chapter, really, if you like, is the, the kind of first gathered worship service in the Bible. God calls his people. They have a confession of faith from the people. The word is opened. There, there's a meal But the goal of all that is God's presence, is God's presence. You see, when we gather, we can't just do it randomly. We're not to just gather and go out surfing or climbing up a hill or doing worship our own way. No, we come God's way. But the goal of that, thirdly, really is full and sweet communion with God. So we see that now in our final point, the goal of worship. The goal of worship is God's glory and presence. The occasion for worship, God's covenant. The way of worship, God's way. And the goal of worship, God's glory and presence. Let me just read 17 and 18. Moses is up on the mountain. It's taken him six days. And then on the seventh day he comes. And verse 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days 
and 40 nights. The the point of worship, the, the goal of worship is God's glory and presence. It's to enjoy God's presence. And really the rest of the book is about that. The rest of Exodus now about right worship, right worship of God and God's presence with us through the ark, through the tabernacle. You see the the cloud of God's presence there in verse 18. When do we next see that? We next see that at the end of Exodus 40. The tabernacle's been built, it's been finished, it's all set up, and the glory cloud descends there as well. God dwells with his people. And Israel are also going to learn a lesson about right worship through wrong worship. You see, Moses now stays on the mountain for 40 days, and while he's up there getting instructions from the Lord, the people start to think he's gone a bit missing, don't they? He's gone AWOL. And in Exodus 32, which I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll come to, we see wrong worship. We see the golden calf. Israel just about blow it. They've, what if they just confessed? All you will say we will do. All that you say we will do, God. They can't even keep it for 40 days. Within 40 days, there's golden calves. And they're dancing and drinking and doing all sorts that is completely contrary to God's word. And Moses has to again pray for them, plead for them, act as a mediator, an intercessor, that God would keep his presence with them. But you see, the point of all this is right. The point of all this worship, the goal of it is God's presence with his people and God's glory. So the worship of God is to lead to God's glory and in his presence, but only Moses can go here. But God does dwell amongst his people here. So what does he do that for us? We're not in Sinai. We're not all these, uh, what, 3,000 years ago there. No, we're, we're here in Dundee. So what does this look like for us? What does this look like for us here today? Dear friends, this is what it looks like. Here's what John says in 1 John 14. John says, the word, the logos, that is Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, God's glory, right there at the end of chapter 24 in verse 17 and 18, God's glory dwelt, or we could say camped, or we could say tabernacled among the people on Sinai. And the glory of the Lord has dwelt, camped, tabernacled among us in Jesus You see, God's presence was with them on the mountain, and God's presence is with us in Jesus. God descended upon the mountain to his people, having rescued them from slavery. And God descends to his people in Jesus in order to rescue us from our sin, our slavery to sin. And so what is kind of Exodus 24 crescendo to? What's Moses' point here? And and what's John saying right at the start of his gospel? What's he saying? He's saying the most important thing is God with us. God with us to be in his presence. That is what we are saved for. Saved from sin. Saved for God's presence to be his people. I heard someone last Sunday starting a sermon and series in Matthew um, say this about the Bible. They said, I think I can get the Bible into three words. That's quite a claim. But when he said the three words, I thought this is exactly right. What is the Bible in three words or a summary? 
It's all aiming at God with us. God with us. And that is what's happening here. And that's what John is saying right at the start of his gospel. It is God with us. Being in God's presence before the face of God, that is the most important thing. One commentator says this, the presence of God is the central reality and the central blessing of the book of Exodus. And Moses is representative as the mediator coming into the presence of God. And without that presence, nothing else matters. Without communion with God, without fellowship with God, without the presence of God, without the favor of God, without meeting with God, nothing else matters. Dear friends, is that the sweetest thing to you? Is meeting with him the most important, sweetest, special thing to you? Because that is the reality of what we get to do today, of what we get to do now. God meeting with us through his word, feasting spiritually on Christ through the Lord's Supper, that we would see Jesus and commune with him. Oh, dear friends, may that be the sweetest thing to you all your days, gather with God's people to meet with the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, Dear friends, pray week by week, month by month, year by year, God would make sweeter and sweeter to you and more precious to you the gathering of his people to worship him because there your longing is to see him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you have called us, that you have called us and rescued us from our sin, that we might be your people. And I pray you would make us a people longing for sweet communion with you for this day, all the days of our lives, and onward into eternity forever. Amen.